Welcome to The Roundup, a North Queensland-based medical podcast offering local content for local clinicians. I'm your host, Alyssa Hathaway. I'm a local GP and family planning clinician and head of James Cook University's clinical school here in Mackay on Yui Country. This collaborative podcasting project between Mackay Hospital and Health Service, local clinicians and JCU will bring you a different topic and guest in each episode. Before we begin, I'd like to respectfully acknowledge the Australian Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people of this nation, their contribution to healthcare and the traditional owners of the lands on which we practice. In today's episode, we're talking about PTSD and trauma with local psychiatrist, Dr. Paul Henderson. Paul, thanks for meeting with us today. It's a pleasure. Thanks for inviting me, Alyssa. Um, We understand that trauma is something you're particularly interested in. What do we need to know about trauma in general terms as doctors in the community? I think sort of overarching is the concept of trauma-informed care. And I suppose I hope by the end of this discussion, uh, your listeners will have more of a sense of what that is and how they can improve um, and enhance that aspect of their own practice. And I suppose most importantly, feel more confident when they um, are confronted by a person that's had trauma in their own life and also be more confident about how to address trauma um, uh, in their lives as well. So when you talk about trauma, it might be different to what I think of as trauma. What's the trauma that we need to be asking our patients about or more alert to in our practice? I think if, if the most sort of general definition of trauma in my mind is any event that overwhelms a person's coping mechanisms and has a lasting adverse effect upon them. Um, because to me, that that encompasses all aspects of trauma and I suppose importantly it distinguishes the quite narrow types of trauma that are part of the diagnostic criteria for um, PTSD and I think in general day-to-day practice if you just think about the diagnostic criteria for PTSD you'll actually be overlooking a lot of traumas that people experience. Um, So if we we sort of drill down a little bit further within that definition um, there's, there's a number of different ways you can categorize trauma but possibly the most helpful is thinking about Um, type 1 trauma, type 2 trauma, and vicarious trauma. The type 1 trauma is what we would probably all classically recognize as trauma as distinct individual events, whether that's a car crash um, uh, or an injury or a near-death experience, Uh, a one-off event that is is in keeping with the um, diagnostic criteria for PTSD. Type 2 trauma is, is repeated and chronic trauma. It's, it can be repeated type one traumas, so they're not entirely distinct. Um, and it's more commonly um, occurs in younger people, although it can occur in older people. And more commonly, it's much more interpersonal in nature. So something that is done by someone to you um, and would tend to be have higher rates of um, psychopathology following it. And then there's vicarious trauma. So uh, witnessing other people's trauma hearing about other people's trauma. And that's something that is obviously particularly relevant to us as doctors. Okay. So what are the sort of things you mentioned with type one, a distinct event might be a car crash. What are the things that might fit into the type two category? So things that would fit into type two are childhood sexual abuse, um, domestic violence, uh, war, um, genocide, you know, anything that refugees, asylum seekers often go through, people in domestically violent relationships, 
Um, severe and chronic racism would also fit into type two traumas. So anything that is ongoing um, and traumatic, and as I say, uh, generally done by one person to to another. Right. So with trauma being an overwhelming experience impacting or overwhelming a person's coping mechanisms and affecting their function, what are the first steps that we as clinicians should take with patients who we feel have experienced trauma type 1 or 2 or vicarious? Well, I suppose the, the first step is understanding potentially how prevalent it is um, and understanding that it may not be the first thought in mind that this person has experienced trauma, but nonetheless, there's a high chance that a lot of people that are walking through your doors, whether you're in primary care or within the hospital setting, have experienced trauma, and that may be impacting their presentation with you, you know, at that moment in time. So if we think about prevalence, you know, the type 1 traumas, um, estimates are up to about 50% of people in their life will experience a significant one-off incident of trauma. And when it comes to type 2 traumas, possibly up to about 25%, um, of which um, the rates of childhood sexual abuse are unfortunately very high, up to one, two, one, uh, sorry, one or two out of every 10 girls will have experienced um, childhood sexual abuse of some form or another, and potentially up to one in 20 boys will have experienced it. Um, and that's, as I say, just one, one type of sort of type two trauma that, that um, is prevalent. So it's, the prevalence rates are very high, and although we, we're going to go on to talk about PTSD, trauma can present in a multitude of ways. Um, so after a type 1 event, probably only about 15% will, will, of people will, will continue to have PTSD symptoms after about 12 months after the event. So actually, for most people, the, um, the outcome is resilient. And although we're talking about the negative effects of trauma, actually, we should understand that for most people, um, the outcome is resilience and they will process it and they'll get through it. Wow. I had no idea that type 1 traumas were so prevalent, about 50% of our community. That's incredible. Uh, of course, we all know that sexual abuse is much more prevalent than we've ever really understood before, but those statistics are still really frightening. Yeah, absolutely. And, and if, we, if we think about other as aspects, of, as I say, PTSD, maybe 15% of people will develop it, but with, if we're thinking mental health outcomes, depression, anxiety disorders, substance use disorders, psychotic disorders, adjustment disorders, somatization disorders, abnormal grief reactions, and even at times OCD. Those are, these are all um, mental health disorders that can be triggered by a traumatic experience. And as well, also we need to think about physical health disorders. There's a seminal study uh, called the um, Adverse Childhood Experiences Study, which was done in the late 90s in um, the States and included about 17,000 people in two cohorts. And they looked at 10 different um, adverse childhood experiences, all the way from um, parental divorce um, to somebody in, in the household having mental health problems through to uh, poverty, um, domestic violence, childhood sexual abuse. And really, when you look across almost all physical health outcomes, cardiovascular disease, cancer, autoimmune disease, um, the more of those events that you've had in your childhood the more chance that you have of experiencing that sort of negative physical health outcome in the future. Um, and once you get over four, four events, the rates of all those physical health problems significantly increase. So somebody doesn't have, <clears throat> excuse me, somebody doesn't even have to be presenting to you with a mental health problem. If somebody is chronically, physically unwell at an early age, um, it's also just worthwhile having in the back of your mind, has this stemmed in some form of childhood trauma? Right. So 
if we were meeting a patient for the first time or um, even someone who we knew quite well and we suspected trauma might be at the heart of their presenting complaint, is it appropriate for us in general practice, for example, or seeing a patient in the emergency department to flag whether or not trauma um, might be behind some of their presenting complaint or is it better to refer them on to a psychiatrist or a psychologist so that they can explore that potential in a safe space? I think it's absolutely appropriate to screen for trauma uh, in primary care or in ED uh, because, um, you know, in the step care model, there's a number of things that can be done in those settings um, before ongoing referral that can really help a person um, at the time of presentation. Um, and just simply the question of, you know, and with, you know, depending on how you state the question, but most simply, have you been traumatized in your life? That on its own can be massively important because actually much of the time that aspect of a person's care is avoided for, for many reasons that we can come on to, to talk about both within our system, but also within the person themselves. And so just indicating that you're interested to understand if somebody has had a traumatic event in their life can actually really open the doors to them wanting to engage and access treatment with you. Um, there are certainly you know, challenges in doing it in primary care or within the ED or within general hospital settings. The, you know, the first of which is we are constantly time pressured um, and constantly overloaded. And actually when somebody discloses trauma, the what you need to do is to be able to give them some time to be able to say whatever that it is they, they need to say about it. Um, but yeah, the way that you can, you can, you know, start the conversation is, you know, you're telling me this, you know, when, whatever this presenting complaint is and a number of people that I've seen that have had similar problems have also experienced some trauma in their life. I'm just wondering, uh, you know, have you ever experienced any traumatic events that you think are continuing to, you know, have an impact on you just now? Right. So then for patients in who self-declare that they have experienced traumatic events or in whom you're suspecting, what would be our next steps once we have started to uncover some of those concerns? Well, I suppose if we start with people who you're suspecting and maybe with that open question, they haven't felt confident enough to say something, but nonetheless, if you still have a sense that they're, they, there's something that they're ashamed about, that they're a little bit reluctant to, to talk about, um, then a different way of going about it, and actually the, the evidence shows that going about it this way is probably gives more um, reports, more um, elicits more um, reports of trauma than just asking questions, is to provide a, screen, a screening questionnaire to them that they can do on their own. And there's a number of screening, screening questionnaires out there, but I've, in the show notes, I've included a, one called the Life Experience Questionnaire, which is a simple page of A4. I think it covers somewhere between 10 and 50 different types of trauma. And it's something that somebody can go away and sort of in their own time and dispassionately just tick a box as they, go, as, as they go down the list. And the next time that you see them in whatever setting that is, that may then allow you to start exploring it more fully. So, Paul, if someone discloses trauma to me as a clinician, how do I go about discussing it with them and what are those next steps? Yeah, I think this is, you know, this is a really important part because I think this is the part that understandably a lot of people uh, clinicians don't feel confident about um, and that's what can lead to you know avoidance of asking questions you know the fear that they will not be able to handle the, the discussion in a sensitive way you know the fear that they may be 
may re-traumatize the person, which actually, if you just have time to listen, you're non-judgmental and you're compassionate, the chances of re-traumatizing somebody is very small. And it's also not mistaking the fact that, yes, people may be getting distressed when talking about their trauma, but that doesn't equate to being re-traumatized. And actually, you know, you would often expect people to get distressed when talking about their trauma, but that's fine as long as you have the confidence to be able to contain that with them and continue the discussion with them. So I suppose, um, you know, just in, in situations where we're unsure, I think it's always good just to go back to basics. So what are the outcomes that you're wanting, you know, from the discussion? So really, you, you know, at its most basic, you want to know how the trauma is affecting somebody. It's not important to really know the details of the trauma in any way. So, you know, have confidence that you're not going to be exploring the trauma in a detailed way. And actually, that is something that you probably do want to avoid uh, to some extent, because doing that within an unskilled way can be where, where people get re-traumatized. Um, and then also, you know, so, you know, understanding how it's affecting the person. And then by the end of the discussion, how can we start the process of maximizing the chance of re recovery? Um, so within that, you know, you're, un, you know, it's about understanding the barriers to the conversations, you know, the person's own shame, the person's previous negative experience of, 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 tra uh, of trauma, um, your own experiences of trauma. So these are sort of things that you may want to have reflected on beforehand when you're thinking just about being a trauma-informed clinician, you know, understanding what the person's expectations are for treatment, uh, understanding what can be done in the immediate term, you know, what you can do in that discussion with them, that from that point onwards, you can be helping them. And also then we'll be talking later about what, what can be done in the longer term from a formal treatment point of view. And so if we're thinking about, you know, the structure of the conversation, again, it's back to basics. So it's the presenting complaint. Um, and in that, you're, you know, you're really starting up front by reassuring them that, you know, I don't need you to tell me everything about the trauma that you've been through. What's most important um, for this discussion is that I understand how the trauma is affecting you. So please feel free to tell me as much or as little as you want about the trauma. So already that you're starting to overcome a barrier there about the person's fear about what they're going to say. You'd probably also want to be talking about confidentiality because another barrier is what's going to happen with this information. And that's particularly relevant if somebody is still in a traumatizing situation. So in a domestic violence relationship, you know, if they think you're going to take the, 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 the information and report it to the police immediately, um, and that's going to actually mean more trauma for them, then the chances of them talking to you are, are pretty slim. But you also do need to sort of caveat the confidential discussions, you know, along the lines of, well, but, you know, although what we say is confidential, I have to say, if you do tell me something that makes me fear that anyone is still significantly at risk, it may be that we that that I can't keep what you've told me confidential, and that allows that you know that's honesty, but it also allows the person to couch the conversation in a way that they can still have it. But if there's things that they want to hold back because because of that, then they can, and that's not ideal. But it still allows the conversation to be had in a way that can then lead into further conversations. Um, you may also want to ask, you know, have you told anybody before? Because often people will previously have disclosed and had a negative response. So classically, particularly within childhood sexual abuse, children will have disclosed and their, their disclosure will be minimized or they'll be told you're lying or you're imagining things. And, you know, you can imagine that if, if that's been their experience, the chances of them want to explore things again is much, much lower. So if you understand they've already had a bad experience, you know, say, so what was it that was difficult about that? And then that can understand how, you know, let you understand how you can specifically um, couch your conversation to try and be the opposite of what their previous negative experience was. And also, you know, you know, if they said, if they say that they haven't told anybody 
body before, you know, thank them. Yeah, I, I really appreciate that you, you put enough trust in me um, that you've been able to tell me this today. And I hope that by the end of the discussion that we can start help understanding how we can help you move forward from this. I suppose the one sort of special case within the sort of presented complaint is it's children disclosing trauma um, because that's something that, you know, essentially has to be reported to child safety. So if we think you're moving on to the history of the complaint, it's then, you know, how is it, you know, how is this affecting you? And, and, you know, just as with any history, you're starting with open questions. So, you know, how do you think what happened is affecting you now? So just nice and open. And then, you know, slightly drilling down into slightly more closed questions. You know, has it made you think differently about yourself? Because a lot of trauma um, really affects a person's self, self-worth, their sense of their self, um, that causes them to develop, to develop a lot of shame. And you can start getting that sense with that open question. Um, has it affected your, your beliefs about other people? Has it affected your trust in other people? Now, if it, you know, if it's a natural disaster or a car crash or something like that, it's not an interpersonal trauma, probably not. But if it is an interpersonal trauma and they're massively distrusting, then you need to understand that that's going to be a significant barrier to them doing a lot of self-care things, but also accessing more formalized um, sort of treatment going forward. Thinking about shame, a lot of people will believe that, that what has happened um, has happened because they deserve it to happen. And that is a massively corrosive self-belief. Um, so, you know, if you're feeling confident enough in the area, this area, you may actually want to ask that question. Do you think you deserve it? Because you really want to, right from the outset, be countering and gently challenging those beliefs. You know, there's nothing that you've told me so far that would suggest that you deserve this. And really, for me, it sounds like it, this, this, the responsibility lies with the person that did this to you. Um, because if you believe you deserved it, then you, there's also a good chance that you don't, put the, you don't deserve to access treatment and you don't deserve to feel better. So, you know, trying to expose that belief early on uh, will be quite important as well. And then drilling down into, into more sort of closed and um, symptom-specific questions. So, you know, are you feeling more anxious um, since this happened? Uh, is it affecting your mood? Is it affecting your sleep? Are you feeling more irritable? Are you feeling emotionally numb? And people can have this horrible situation in which they go between anxiety and anger and numbness. So they don't feel any positive emotions, and the, ocean, the only emotions that they do feel are really horrible. And that's, that's not un uncommon in people that have been traumatized. You know, is it impacting you know, any of the important relationships in your life? Particularly if people are feeling emotionally numb, they will also feel quite distant in their relationships. And also quite importantly, are you avoiding anything? Are you avoiding doing anything because of the way you feel at the moment? Because it's important to understand, are they, have they started to avoid all the positive things in life or many of the positive things in life that could actually be helping them get through this in the short to medium term? Then you sort of move on just very briefly into drug and alcohol history. You know, since this has happened, have, you know, you know, have, the amount you're drinking, has that changed? Have you, you know, the amount of cannabis you're using, has that changed? Um, because, you know, it's a very common coping mechanism to use drugs or alcohol to, to, you know, numb the negative emotions you're feeling or numb the shame that you're feeling. And clearly, if that's the case, you're giving yourself a much higher chance of not processing the trauma. So again, that will give you an idea if that's an area that you're going to need to work on when you're thinking about the treatment plan. Obviously, with this sort of thing, it's and thinking about the immediate treatment, it's important to then move on to think about risk. You know, since this has happened to you, have you ever felt that it's not worth living anymore? Or have you ever felt that, you know, you've, you've um, have you ever thought about harming yourself? Have you thought about suicide? So because obviously if that is the case, you may need to be thinking about sort of safety plans in the short term and immediate ongoing referral. If somebody's telling you, yeah, I, I really don't know how to cope with this anymore, then, you know, referral to the acute care team is something that you may have to do there. Then. 
Then lastly, sort of, um, you know, once you've sort of concentrated on the more pathological side of things, you know, starting to think about what are the more positive things? What are the things that you can draw on? So what are your social circumstances at the moment? Who's important in your life? Who can you rely on? Who can you connect with? And even if you've withdrawn from that at the moment, who is potentially there that could help you through this? And then we can, you know, moving on to think more specifically about immediate treatment planning. It's really important to ask the person, so how do you want this to go? You know, they may say you actually say to you, actually, I'm just really happy I've told somebody and I don't want anything else at the moment. I'm not prepared. I don't feel like I'm in the right place to deal with this in the moment. And that's absolutely fine. If, if trauma is ongoing or if the symptoms of trauma are ongoing, the person really needs to be in the right place in their own mind to start addressing them. Because if you start addressing them too early or you try to start sort of forcing somebody to address them too early, they're just going to withdraw and avoid. And actually, you're going to get the opposite outcome to, to what you want. And in that case, you know, for, you know, for a general practitioner, it's, it's a sort of holding pattern. You know, you're talking, you're going to be giving them advice that we're going to talk about, about the generally healthy things in life and then bring them back and just see how they're going. Um, you know, are you ready to start addressing it? Or, you know, as we mentioned before, the, a lot of people, you know, these trauma symptoms will naturally start to improve anyway. And so you get an understanding that we don't have to do anything more for them. So once you, you know, once you know what the person's expectations are, you know, all the, you know, thinking about all the generic things you do. So psychoeducation is enormous. Um, you know, explaining, well, you know, because the links between trauma and all the different ways it can affect us, they're not a lot of common, you know, anxiety, obviously sleep to some extent, but a lot of them are not sort of common sense. And so it's, it's going, you know, sitting down with a person and say, look, this is, these are all the common ways that, that um, trauma affects you. But also it's really common that after a matter of weeks or a matter of months, these will gradually lift if you just do the right things for yourself in life. And you shouldn't, you know, even though it feels absolutely horrific now, you know, for most people, you shouldn't have to worry that it's going to continue feeling like this. You're going to continue feeling like this. And if you do continue feeling like this, then there's a number of things, different things that we can do at that point. But at the moment, these are probably the, you know, the basic things you need to be doing for yourself. Um, and before get sort of, you know, necessarily going on to the generic basic things, you can also, you know, take a strength-based approach by um, asking the person, so you've been through this really tough event. You know, it's common for tough events to happen in life. How have you coped within the past? You know, what have you done that's been really helpful for you in the past? And actually, they may say, well, I haven't been through any hard events. And you, and you can say, you know, you bend there and ask them, well, well, what do you think, you know, what do you think of the, what do you think of your strengths? What do you think of the aspects about you that you might be able to bring into play here that you could help yourself? So, so that, you know, allows you to obviously talk about the generic stuff, but it also said, look, I really love playing my guitar. I haven't picked it up um, since this happened. You know, you may start encouraging them, well, do you think you, you could start doing that again? Because if that's something that gives you a bit of pleasure, a bit of joy, a bit of meaning, um, then doing that again, you know, something like that, that's just a, a wonderful natural counter to the effects that the trauma is having on you. So when we're thinking about the more generic stuff, you know, as uh, you know, sleep is so important, maintaining social contact is really important, but often a real challenge for many of the people we see, and often they haven't really made, had much social contact before the trauma anyway. Um, minimizing avoidance is enormously important. You know, because that becomes a self-compounding situation and your anxiety about going into the situations that you're avoiding will just keep building and building over time. Minimizing your drug, drug and alcohol use, uh, if that's a particular issue. Maximizing your nutrition, maximizing your exercise um, and, you know, potentially doing something like breathing exercises. Now, that's a lot. And you're not going to throw all that at somebody at once. So, you know, if somebody just isn't sleeping well, you know, maybe concentrating on their sleep concentrating on trying to maintain social contact, concentrating on minimizing drug and alcohol use, 
and concentrating on trying to minimize avoidance and you know employing any of the strengths that a, that a, that a person has already reported to you and sort of sort of bringing them into action and i suppose then that sort of can be where the the conversation concludes so you know i've understood how this has impacted you i've had a discussion with you to help you under you you understand more fully about how it's impacting you we understand what strengths that you could be bringing to the situation at the moment we understand what are the things you probably shouldn't be doing that could make things worse and we understand the things that you ideally you could be doing to help you process and recover more quickly so i suppose the last thing that comes to mind is what happens in you know the situation that we fear the most and somebody just gets really really emotionally distressed during the discussion and i suppose for somebody that is traumatized that probably means they're being in their mind they're being taken back into the traumatic situation um and they are either sort of having a flashback potentially or just lots of you know the the memories which are just flooding through their mind or they're experiencing all the emotions that 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 were you know there at the time of the trauma and if if that's the case um you know you would you would be explicit about that you know i i can see you know the discussion you know understandably is is really upsetting you so let's stop talking about it now and we can maybe come back to it the next time we meet but i think at the moment let's try and just help you feel a little bit less distressed at the moment and just changing the topic maybe enough for somebody else so if you know somebody reasonably well and you know that they have a really positive relationship in their life so you know um you know whether that's their husband their wife their child their grandchild you could just ask them to talk about that person because naturally that will bring them their mind away from the trauma or it, or it often will and it will and because that person is associated with a lot of positive emotion hopefully that that will allow the positive emotion associated with them to replace the negative emotion that is associated with the trauma so i know you have a really good relationship with your grandson johnny tell me about you know tell me what about what he's up to at the moment and that can be enough of a change of a direction to you know to minimize the distress and just take the person out of the mindset that they've got into if that's not enough then you can just be a, a little bit more sort of start to sort of introduce us some basic psychological first aid and so what you can say there's a number of different ways you can go about it but you you know if they're breathing very quickly you can say okay you know it looks like you're you're probably breathing a bit too fast and that's making you a bit more anxious so why don't we just sit and do some slow breaths for a minute and you will do that with them and the important thing when with any breathing exercise is that the out breath is longer than the in breath because that's how the you know that's where the parasympathetic nervous system is stimulated so you could sit down and go okay we're going to breathe in through our nose for four and take a little pause and then we're going to breathe out for our nose for six with uh, for six and you can just do that with them and you're counting in for four and counting out for six and if you do that for a minute a lot of people will start to be able to calm down um, or feel less emotionally distressed and lastly Uh, you know if somebody is really sort of stuck in a, a flashback or the memories it's about grounding them in the moment and the breathing can be enough because you can get them to you know actually concentrate concentrate on the sensations of the breath not just slowing the breath but say to them okay well why don't you feel actually how that breath is when as it goes in and out of your nostrils or can you feel your breath in your belly and that is taking their focus away from the trauma and, and into the here and now or you could say you know how about we just do a little a grounding exercise and i I put some um grounding exercises on the show notes and what this is about is is just bringing your focus to the here and now so why don't you tell me five different things that you could see in the room because it's grounding exercises use any of your senses so that's obviously a visual one or you're sitting in the chair at the moment why don't you put the hand your hands on the arms of the chair 
and just tell me what the arms of the chair feel like. So anything that really activates um, you know, any of your senses, and classically actually smell is the best one, but often we don't have anything that's really strongly smelling about. But if, if, you're, if you happen to be sitting with a woman and you, know, you might say, tell me, have you got any perfume in your bag? Um, do you want to bring it out and do you want to smell the perfume and tell me what it smells like? Because yeah, as I say, classically speaking, those, those can be the strongest and most profound um, grounding exercises that can really bring somebody out of a lot of emotional distress quite, quite quickly if done well. So if they do score highly in terms of trauma, do they are they best served by seeing a trauma specialist or would any psychologist have the skills then to help those patients work through those traumatic events? I, I suppose I hope in this day and age where trauma-informed care has been much more prevalent, particularly within psychological circles for you know, probably the last 10, 15, 20 years, that any psychologist should be in a position to um, be able to provide trauma-informed care. Now, there's lots of different uh, psychological approaches to trauma-informed care, and, and a particular psychologist may um, be more skilled in one approach compared to another. Um, but equal, having said that, you know, the, the research base would suggest that whatever trauma-informed approach you use um, will generally be as beneficial as another, although for individual people, you know, no doubt one particular approach may be more beneficial than another. So, so yeah, so you shouldn't necessarily have to... Ref- refer to somebody who specializes in trauma-informed care. But if, you know, if somebody is very highly tra- traumatized and very complex, um, the Blue Knot uh, Foundation, which is the sort of peak body um, in non, sort of, um, non-governmental organization within Australia for people that have experienced complex trauma, so that type two trauma, they do have a referral service where they can identify, um, they, can, they can provide information on, on psychologists around the country that can provide um, you know, very high levels of trauma-informed care. Um, and that's also a link that I would include in the, in the show notes for you. Fantastic. So you did mention that resilience Um, is incredibly important in recovery from trauma. And uh, what are some of those factors, those protective factors in our patients that make them more likely to experience that resilience and uh, have a a less negative outcome from their trauma? That's an interesting one because a number of them are not having a number of negative um, uh, experiences already in life. So, you know, less experience of trauma. Um, less experience of social isolation, uh, less substance use, less pre-existing mental health problems. Are, um, I suppose when you flick around, all those other things give you a higher chance of having a negative outcome uh, with trauma. If you're, if you're thinking more sort of from a positive basis, I suppose having um, enough emotion and intelligence to some extent to recognize the impacts of trauma on you, to be able to reap reach out to your natural friends and family and support systems to be able to discuss and process it within the relationships that are closest to you without necessarily having to um, rely on professional relationships to help process it. Um, doing the, the, all the sort of self-care things that we know are generally helpful for mental well-being, you know, whether that be nutrition, exercise, sleep is a massive one. If you're not getting your sleep right from the outside, from the outset, whatever you're doing, everything else is going to be so much harder. Um, so, yes, yeah, so there's a number of sort of different factors. And I suppose, you know, going back to childhood, the quality of your relationship with your parents is a really important one. The, the better, um, the more supportive, the more nurturing, the more loving a relationship you have with your parents, the more likely 
you'll be able to, uh, you'll have developed the skills of emotional regulation yourself, of emotional intelligence that will set you up to be more resilient if you experience trauma later. Um, and conversely, um, you know, unloving, critical, cold, judgmental parental relationships will leave you uh, at much higher vulnerability for having negative impacts um, on your mental health if you experience trauma in life. And to be honest, in, you know, having a negative or cold or critical um, relationship with your parents is traumatic in and of itself. And that's a really good example of a type of trauma that can have massive consequences in later life, but nonetheless is completely missed um, when we think about purely the very tight definitions around PTSD. Right. So moving on to PTSD then, Paul, how do we diagnose it? You mentioned earlier it has really narrow uh, criteria for the definition as, a, um, as it appears in the DSM. Yeah, so in DSM, they have what is called criterion A, which is the criterion that you must satisfy before considering all the rest of the criteria uh, to have a diagnosis of PTSD. And their wording is exposure to actual threat and death serious injury or sexual and violence in one of the more one or more of the following ways and that's including um, direct experience within yourself witnessing it in it another person or learning about it from another person that's that latter bit is where vicarious trauma comes in into play right and so then the current best management that's with psychological therapies isn't it so it usually would be with a probably with a combination of psychologically psychological therapy and pharmacological therapy um, and which is not to say that everybody has to have pharmacological therapy or psychological therapy you know a lot of it will come down to personal choice because if you put no stock in pharmacological in, in um, pharmacological or psychological therapy the chances of it you know really being helpful for you are fairly small um, so uh, if we think about sort of um, psychological therapies you say just a general trauma-informed approach is, is important um, trauma-focused CBT is a well-recognized approach narrative exposure therapy would be a well-recognized approach EMDR would be a well-recognized approach cognitive processing therapy would be a well-recognized well approach but there's probably another 10 or 15 um, therapies that other um, that psychologists could in, engage in. If we think about sort of more complex trauma, things like um, uh, EMD, uh, not sorry, not EMDR, India, DBT would be a really um, uh, appropriate way to uh, sort of start approaching that with a person as well. Gosh, that's a lot of options for management in terms of psychological therapies. That's reassuring. But as you say, you really have to have buy-in from your patient to engage in either the psychological or pharmacological therapies. So developing that uh, sound um, and positive therapeutic relationship is the key to all management for all conditions across the vast variety that we see, isn't it? Absolutely. And, and actually, the evidence base in psychology shows that probably 80 to 85 percent of the benefit of a psychological approach is nothing to do with the type of psychological approaches that has been taken and everything to do with the, the nature and the quality of the relationship you have with your psychologist. Um, and I think that would expand to the nature and, you know, you know, outside psychological approaches, you know, the nature of the relationship you have with your treating um, doctor as well, whatever, whether it's primary care or within a specialty. Uh, so what I always sort of coach patients is that you know you've got your mental health care plan you've been referred to a psychologist um, if in the first couple of sessions you're sitting down with them and you don't feel that you gel with them you have a sense that they don't quite understand where you're coming from or even if they do the treatment approach that they're taking you know doesn't necessarily gel with with you you know if you feel 
assertive enough, have that conversation with them. But otherwise, just understand that you need to gel with your, psych- with your psychologist or your psychiatrist. And if it's not working, then have the confidence to say, okay, I'm, I think I'm going to go and try and meet somebody else that, it, that I do gel with. And that's really hard because it goes against sort of general kind of social rules of not wanting to upset people, not wanting to disappoint, disappoint people. But it's also really hard because the chances are that you'll have waited on a waiting list for two, three, four months. And then if you get there and all of a sudden it doesn't seem to be what you need to think, oh, really, I have to go through this again. Maybe I'll just stick with this. But to be honest, going somewhere else, if, you know, because just sticking with it, if you're not gelling with a person, it's probably not going to get you very far, unfortunately. Okay, so troubleshooting with the patients if they're not achieving a really good therapeutic alliance with their, uh, their treating psychologist or psychiatrist, have the confidence to make a change. And we say that to our general practice patients too all the time, don't we? Not all GPs are right for all patients. What are the um, best um, pharmacological therapies? You mentioned there are a few. Can you talk about those in broad classes, please? Yeah, so really the place to start is with an SSRI. Uh, mm-hmm. And um, the uh, also in the show notes, there's the um, Phoenix, uh, Phoenix Australia uh, PTSD guidelines. And that really you know, details everything to do with the treatment of PTSD and the most up-to-date evidence base. And they um, refer to sertraline, fluoxetine, or paroxetine as good starting point. Uh, and um, I suppose I would have a, although paroxetine can be a wonderful antidepressant, I would have a little bit of caution about it with anybody that you um, fear won't be really consistently compliant because it has really significant rates of withdrawal, even after just missing one dose for some people. Wow. So it can actually be a pretty aversive reaction for somebody who is not. Um, able to take it day in day out fluoxetine on the other hand is absolutely the opposite you know if you take it for two weeks and you you stop it'll still be in your system for 10 days so that's um, uh, a medication that can actually be pretty good for people that are struggling with compliance obviously you know the less compliant you are the less chance it's going to be beneficial but at least you won't be getting the withdrawal effects sometimes it can be a bit stimulating and so for people that are very agitated as part of their trauma response you may want to think twice about fluoxetine and then something like sertraline can be pretty um, pretty helpful from, from that point of view because it tends to be better tolerated than almost any other antidepressant. Okay. So any other tips and tricks or troubleshooting um, go-tos for us, please? Well, I think, as, as I mentioned before, sleep is really important as a foundational uh, a foundation stone of any form of recovery. And so trying to get sleep right is really a necessity um, in whatever you're doing. And, you know, and that starts from just all the, the basic sleep hygiene stuff, you know, how much caffeine you're having in, in the day, you know, what are the distractions or noises or light levels within your, within your bedroom, how much screen time just running up to bed, you know, are you working late and your brain's really busy before going to bed? So just, you know, all the general sort of sleep hygiene rules apply. Um, and, but I suppose in my mind that if there, if there's a trauma response that is causing sleep problems, the sleep hygiene stuff will stop it getting worse. Probably you will stop, it will stop um, you doing things that make it worse, but whether it will then actually help it improve, that's, I suppose, a different thing. And then, you know, so then you're thinking, well, if somebody is having a lot of nightmares, prazosin can be really good as a direct treatment for trauma related nightmares. 
And in that case, um, I would usually start at somewhere between 0.5 and two milligrams, depending on the person. So, um, you know, a reasonable size adult, um, reasonably aged adult that doesn't have any problems with blood pressure, I'd be happy to start them at two milligrams. Um, but um, somebody who's frail and elderly possibly has problems with low blood pressure, I'd start them at 0.5. And you can work up in a stepwise manner um, to up, potentially up to 10 milligrams. And um, my experience is you often see a gradual stepwise improvement as you do work up the dose. And I would give somebody, you know, probably a couple of weeks on a single dose before deciding whether to take the next step up or not. Um, if nightmares are not a particular concern, then some augmenting with something like metazapine. Um, to whatever the other antidepressant you may choose, um, or you know, simply using metazapine on its own. Although it's it's actually interesting, it's not in the guidelines, but nonetheless, you know, starting metazapine at 15 milligrams at night can be very helpful for sleep. Um, a lot of people, you know, respond well to phenergan um, between 10 and 75 milligrams. Um, and remembering with whatever you're doing with sort of sedative medication, that for people that are experiencing hangovers in the morning, that can be really off-putting. Um, as long as it doesn't knock them out as soon as they're they're taking it, then you can bring it earlier and earlier in the evening. And some people will even just take these medications after dinner. They will, you know, they will it will not be sedative, um, sedated enough that it makes them go to bed at half past seven, but it does relax them enough that they can get off to sleep reasonably without having too much of a hangover in the morning. Thanks so much for joining us today, Paul, to talk about trauma and PTSD. Uh, of course, with PTSD, there's more than one criterion for the diagnosis. We've only really touched on criterion A today, but we'll add the additional diagnostic criteria to our podcast notes. So we've talked about so many things, particularly, I think, for me, the importance to remember that the outcome of trauma for the vast majority of patients and friends and co-workers is, of course, resilience and that we shouldn't be shy when we're starting a conversation about trauma with our patients or with anyone else for that matter, and the importance of good social supports and self-care as part of that resilience piece and part of recovery from traumatic events. Thank you so much for your time. For more information about The Roundup or to share your feedback and ideas for future episodes, visit nqrth.edu.au forward slash roundup hyphen podcast or contact us at nqrth.mackay at jcu.edu.au. We also want to advise that the views and opinions presented in this podcast are those of the speaker only and do not represent the views and opinions of James Cook University, Northern Queensland Regional Training Hubs, or Queensland Health. The content supplied in this podcast is not intended as medical advice and is for educational and entertainment purposes only. Northern Queensland Regional Training Hubs is an initiative of the Australian Government's Integrated Rural Training Pipeline, and is facilitated by James Cook University in partnership with public and private hospitals, Queensland Aboriginal and Islander Health Council, Health Services, Aboriginal Community Controlled Health Organisations and General Practice Clinics.